We need leaders to, you know, turn up visibly and, you know, manifest, you know, optimism and enthusiasm and encouragement and compassion, not fear and panic and, you know, nastiness and narcissism. And we don't need that. You know, we need leaders to lead. And that's partly what the HR agenda is about. Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired. I'm joined today by Alan Watkins, neuroscientist, international leadership expert, best-selling author, and founder and CEO of Complete. Alan, welcome to Learning Rewired. Thank you very much, Bevan. Lovely to be here. Alan, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. There's a lot for us to explore, especially around the roles of HR in the world that we're moving into and the value of guiding organizations strategically towards having a really positive impact in the world beyond us. Mm. I think just to lay a bit of context, I was wondering if I could share with you just something that I read recently. It was a Just Capital survey, the organization Just Capital in the US, a survey that they did of a few thousand consumers. And more than 80% of the respondents to the survey said that they would remember which companies, in inverted commas, did the right thing by their workers during COVID. And more than three quarters also indicated that they wouldn't forget those businesses that had treated their workers less than optimally or perceived to treat them less than optimally during COVID. And that sense of that consumer memory really brought to light for me how much COVID has really been about people, hasn't it? I mean, we've spoken a lot about disease and we've spoken about economic fallout, and but whichever way you come into it, you can really bring this down eventually to people. And I think organizations have been under significant scrutiny and will continue to be under significant scrutiny as to how they have treated their people during COVID. And do you think this sets a tone for where we go from here? Definitely. And um, my company works with about 100 multinationals in all markets, all sectors, and uh, probably across the board, you know, this sort of cliche of people are our most important asset, which has been trotted out, as you and I know, for the last 20 years, and it mm. was just lip service, essentially. But COVID has made it really true. And it's changed the relationship between the commercial line, uh, or the CEO or the CFO, and the chief people officer. It's like, oh, my God, you know, it's the people, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. It always was, by the way. but And so we've noticed that a lot more people now realize that. And so that's probably one of the silver linings uh, of a pandemic like this is it's put people in touch with their own humanity. And, and when they've been so addicted to task, target, goal, metric, and many leaders somewhat disconnected from the human beingness of organizations, COVID's intimately put them back in touch with that. Mm. That connection to the humanity, I mean, at an individual level, be it amongst leaders or just anyone in an organization, that connection to a shared humanity, which is one of the other outcomes of this whole COVID process, is that there's been the sense of we've all been in this together to a certain degree. Do you think that's enough to to generate a new surge towards a people-centered approach to organizational development? Or do you think we need to do more? Is there something far more strategic and intentional that has to be put in place? It's not enough. So all of us, our lives actually are three-dimensional, not one-dimensional. The challenge in leadership is many have become one-dimensional, you know, focused on what we call the world of it. What am I doing today? What do I need to do to move the business forward? What are all the goals and the doing goals and the tasks and targets, metrics, all of that? But our lives are really three-dimensional, you know, so we're not just human doings. We're human beings. So in addition to doing something, there's an interior, there's something going on inside of us, you know, which is our humanity, our thoughts, our feelings, our ethics, our morality, our virtue, our consciousness, our identity, all of those things, which you can't see out there in the doing world. 
it's in here in the being world. And then the other dimension is our interpersonal world, what we call the world of we. So there's I, our being world, we, our interpersonal world of relationships and culture and team dynamics, and then the world of doing. So our experience of being human beings really is three-dimensional, not one-dimensional. So it's not enough to recognize that we're all in this on one planet, you know, you know, duh. We're in relationship with each other. Of course, we're in relationship with each other. And we've got to get better at being in relationship with each other. We've got to get better at what we do in the world. And we've got to mature as human beings. So one cannot take a one-dimensional approach because the problem is always three-dimensional. In fact, it's four-dimensional because the fourth dimension is the sophistication of us as human beings, the sophistication of our relationships, and the sophistication of what we do. So we talk about 4D leadership. I, we, and it. And we've got to, you know, get better in the I, get better in the we, and get better in the it. That ability to have an I, we, it conversation, a multiple perspective conversation, and engage authentically with somebody in those types of conversations. This is going to be gold capacity as we move forward, is, is what I'm hearing you say. Do you think that that's something that leaders are ready for? Or do you think that there's something that you see in the system has to be developed considerably more? And what are the, the kind of the capacities that we need to focus on, especially from the fields of HR, where we're looking to develop leaders in, pers- in particular capacities? How do we enter this? I mean, where, from which point? We've been talking for years about the need for better emotional intelligence, etc. But we're talking about different kind of traction that we're aiming for here with people becoming even more aware that they've got to do more than just a load of strategy and task and target. They've actually got to take proper care of the well-being of their people, and they have to pay more attention to the way that the people, particularly when they're working from home in their relationships, it really empowers the HR agenda because it's about the I and the we as much as it is about the it. So the really super uh, smart HR directors are emboldened by this and saying, you know, finally, we can start talking about people as they really are, not as human doings, but as human beings. And I think the opportunity here is to lean into, well, what does development of a human being look like? So many HR professionals have been obsessed with learning. So in the L and D equation, it's been all L and no D. Mm. And what we're about is saying, no, no, Learning is only 20% of the value. 80% of the value is in the development, which is the application of the learning to drive positive change, to drive evolution. That's where the game-changing nature of people intervention really sits. So again, the HR community is beginning to realize that it's not so much about learning, it's more about development. In fact, in the HR book we talked about, we're at this inflection point moving from HR directors, and many of the HR directors have started to become CHROs, uh, and at the cutting edge, CPOs, chief people officers. But in the future, they will become CDOs, chief development officers. And many of them will start to bake in development as a strategic advantage and become what's called in America DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations. So we'll have CDOs, chief development officers, driving DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations. So because it is a game changer. You know, it's the difference between a six-year-old trying to solve a problem and a 12-year-old. When you're more developed, you can solve problems way faster. And because the world's speeding up, getting more complicated, you need speed and agility. And so that is given to you by increased maturity. So it's a strategic advantage. The more organizations lean into development, the better they're fit for the future.
That, that, that's an exciting prospect, Alan. So, I mean, just want to tune into you, you, you use the word evolution there. And we've been talking about this kind of personal evolution of the leader themselves, the interior evolution of the organization. There's this exterior evolution, as you say. I mean, you know, we can't open any kind of publication, any kind of book these days without reading about exponential growth curves, exponent, the exponential increase in the pace of society and development, et cetera. That, that external evolution is happening very, very quickly. And we're all very, very aware of that. Mm the interior evolution of that, what's happening within organizations is slightly behind. Is this why we find ourselves in this kind of this reactive sense where we find leaders yeah. constantly kind of reacting to what's happening? And what am I hearing you suggest that we need to move ahead of that bow wave and actually start be working far more strategically and preemptively in terms of development? Yes, because with the exterior acceleration, you know, technology-driven or, or just complexity-driven, our interior maturity hasn't kept pace. And this is currently very obvious around the world in the political arena. So we've created a load of really super complicated, difficult problems in humanity have created. And the maturity of the human beings who are in political charge around the world haven't kept pace. So the thinking is too simplistic. And you're seeing it very clearly in COVID in the death rate. I mean, it's almost you know, compatible with the level of simplicity with which global leaders have approached the problem. So those leaders that have taken a much more mature, sophisticated, nuanced approach to how to handle COVID their death rate has been lower. The ones who've taken a more simplistic gung-ho approach, the death rate's been higher. And so you're seeing it play out as people are beginning to realize maybe popularism isn't great. You know, maybe our obsession with celebrity and, you know, let's just put the popular person in charge isn't good. And it's certainly not good when you've got really super complicated things like a global pandemic. We actually need wise people in charge, not popular people in charge, because their consequences, I mean, real-life consequences in a death rate if you've got populists in charge who aren't wise enough to solve the complexity. Point well taken, but how do we make sure that we can accelerate that internal evolution so that it matches the rate of external evolution? Because that's that, there's a big difference going on there and that seems a difficult, a difficult bridge to cross. Well, so first of all, you have to realize there is an internal uh, evolution. There is, mm. It's not a, a matter of learning. You know, learning is the acquisition of skills and knowledge and experience, mm. right? It's the deployment of that learning. So if you just acquire knowledge, but you don't use that knowledge to make yourself more sophisticated, then you've got what we call aboutism. I know all about emotional intelligence, <laughs> but I'm not emotionally intelligent. You know, So I've got the knowledge. I mean, I could write a book on emotional intelligence, but you know, most people's experience of me is I'm not very emotionally intelligent. So that's when people have the learning, but not the wisdom. You know, They've acquired the knowledge, but they've not correctly deployed the knowledge to drive a, a greater level of sophistication. So the first step is you have to realize that that is a profoundly important thing. Because if you can't tell the difference between L and D, if you're using these two words interchangeably, then you'll never really make progress. Mm. So you've got to, L is okay, you have to acquire the knowledge in order to deploy the knowledge. But as I said, 80% of the value is in the deployment in the D, in the development piece, rather than the learning. So that's the first is that realization. Secondly, you need a ladder. You need to, a, a way of measuring development, measuring evolution, measuring progress. So how do I know if I become more mature? How do I know if I become more sophisticated? So you need the ability to measure it. And most of the leadership assessment instruments can't do that because they were never designed to. Most of the whole assessment industry is doing what we call descriptive assessments, not developmental assessment. Mm. Descriptive is very interesting. So the three commonest descriptions are personality. So things like the Hogan, I mean, they will describe the big five dimensions of your personality. Very interesting. Or 
you know, there might be a typology like an Enneagram or a Myers-Briggs. So again, interesting to know that you're an ENFP or an INTJ or whatever it is you are, your typology is this. Or it might be a strength finder like the Gallup strength finder. These are all descriptions of you. Mm-hmm. But what they can't do is they can't set a developmental journey for you. In fact, they were, in fairness to them, they were never designed to do that, just designed to describe you, mm-hmm. not develop you. What's now needed today is developmental assessment. So that's step two. First of all, realize L isn't D and D isn't L. Second is actually have a yardstick to be able to measure the ROI, to measure the development. And then thirdly, you need a playbook of how do you get somebody from level three to level four or level four to level five Mm -hmm. or level five to level six. Mm -hmm. So you need those three things. You need the awareness to drive the change. You need a way to measure the change and you need a playbook that can actually affect the change. Mm -hmm. I mean, Alan, you're saying something quite radical there. This has always been called learning and development. That's nothing new. And mm-hmm. over time, perhaps these two terms have sort of become assimilated and just been used as one term. But there are two powerful distinctions there between learning and development. But what you're talking about when actually getting serious about the development part and seeing mm-hmm. learning as learning and as necessary, but actually mm-hmm. looking at development in a far more focused and constructive way mm-hmm. really challenges the structure in many organizations of how learning and development's even applied. No, correct. You're absolutely right. So let me let me give you a couple of uh, metaphors that might hopefully bring this alive. Is that say we've got a, a difficult job. What we've got is we've done a load of descriptive assessments on a bunch of six-year-olds. We've got one six-year-old and their personality. One of them is very agreeable. Agreeableness is one of the big five dimensions of personality. One six-year-old is very agreeable. One six-year-old is very disagreeable. One six-year-old is an INTJ. Another six-year-old is an ENFP. That's not what's going to stop them doing the job properly. Mm. What's going to stop them doing the job properly is they're six. (laughs) And this job needs an 18-year-old, right? So whether they're an agreeable six-year-old or a disagreeable six-year-old or an INTJ six-year-old or an ENFP six-year-old, whether they've got this set of strengths or that set of strengths is largely irrelevant, Mm. right? This job needs an 18-year-old. It needs somebody with much more mature and sophisticated thinking, somebody who can abstract think, six-year-olds think in literal terms. So when you develop somebody, when they develop more maturity, that's the game changer. And so if organizations have any kind of ambition for themselves to flourish into the future, they have to understand the profound difference between learning and development. They have to understand that we need developmental assessments, not descriptive assessments, because that's the only way they're going to flourish. And we have to stop wasting time and money You know, so I I don't see it as particularly radical myself. It's just super rational. It's just the the application of quality thinking to the problem is we've got to get into development and stop describing the problem and start fixing the problem. And that requires more sophistication. So we've got to be able to measure the degree of sophistication accurately. And we need the playbook. How do you get somebody from one level to another level? So let me tell you the second story, which is I was approached by the CFO of one of the big five accounting firms uh, a while ago. And she said, look, um, Alan, I I want to talk to you about this member of staff that's troubling me. We don't really know whether to fire her or promote her. So interesting you say that. Tell me a bit more. She said, well, this woman's the biggest fee earner in the the London office. She's bringing millions of pounds of business uh, into the business. uh, But we've got five grievance procedures around her. I said, oh, no, don't tell me. But you gave her a coach, didn't you? She went, well... Yeah, yeah, I did give her a coach. I said, the coach has taught her some skills. She said, the coach has taught her some skills. I said, it's just made her a more effective bully, hasn't it? That's what's happened. That's exactly what's happened. So that's when, you know, in well-intentioned coaching has been skill transference, but no development. Mm. Um, So she's just become a more slick bully. Now, when you develop somebody, they move up a level. 
So if you use the gaming metaphor, this is what we call leveling up. You move up a level and at the new level, the bullying disappears because you realize the short-sightedness and the counterproductive nature of that bullying. Whereas actually, if you don't move them up a level, they just become more skillful at the problem in the first place. Mm. So that's why development is the game changer. That's why organizations and HR directors have got to totally lean into this, what's called vertical development. It is the thing that will save us all ultimately. Mm. So Alan, let's, let's talk a bit about the, the kinds of development that you see generally being needed in the environment at the moment. So you use that example, a senior leader in, in an organization, but what else, what kind of the other areas do leaders generally need to focus on at the moment as we, mm. as we move into this very, very uncertain time for many people. Um, you know, we, we hear people, you know, people are talking all about all the time about the competencies and skills that leaders need in order to deal with the world around them. But behind this, there's this layer of developing to those competencies and skills as well. So, I mean, you've mentioned the things that we need there. We need that support structure, et cetera. But. Yeah. Let's talk about competence and skills. I mean, there are, in our view, eight lines of development that matter in most companies. I mean, there are hundreds of lines of where mm-hmm. human beings can develop. I mean, you know, you can develop your cooking capability, for example. I mean, I'd be virtually a zero on that one. Um, you know, I burn water. I mean, I'm just not good at it, you know. So Heston Blumenthal, as a mate of mine, you know, would be off the charts on the cooking line of development. But in most companies, if you're not running a restaurant, cooking development, or your sophistication as a cook doesn't really matter in most businesses. But there are eight that really, really matter. You know, physical sophistication. And I don't mean how big is your bicep. I mean, how much energy have you got to do the job and... What's the quality of that energy? Is it very patchy, chaotic energy or very coherent energy? So physical sophistication is important. Quant and qual of energy. Then emotional and social intelligence, we've touched on. That's terribly important. Cognitive sophistication. Of the eight lines, ironically, the least relevant, although companies are very obsessed by the cognition. In the C-suite, most people are cognitively smart enough. They don't need to be more sophisticated. That's not the one that's holding them back, but you can measure that. Then you've got evolution of values evolution of ego so those are the five internal you can't see so physical emotional social intelligence cognitive values and ego and then there's the three on the outside which is behavior which i'll come back to in a second so because you could be the dalai lama on the inside but if it doesn't translate to your behavior it's not really going to work then so you've got to be in behavioral terms you've got to be sophisticated but you might be behaviorally very sophisticated but live in a cave all right so networks then become important and then influence in those networks. So those are the eight lines that really matter. But if we take the competency, I was talking to a company, a financial institution last week, and they'd done this classic move of creating a, a, a behavioral competency framework. And they'd invented four behaviors that they thought were important to their future. And now they were planning to roll out this competency framework and how they're going to measure it. Now, of course, what they didn't know is there's a load of academic research about which behaviors really matter. So it's been well established for quite some time is that there are only 11 behaviors that really move the dial in organizational life. I mean, there are thousands and thousands Mm. of human behaviors, but the alphabet consists of 11 letters. So if you think of it that way, there are 11 letters in the alphabet. So when companies come up with behavior X, what you'll find is they're usually combinations of two or three or four letters. So therefore, it makes it very difficult to measure those behaviors because they're measuring a sort of an alloy rather than a pure metal. They're measuring mm-hmm. a mix of things. So we looked at the four behaviors this financial institution had come up with, and they were at least two letters. And one of the behaviors was five letters. So it would then be very, very difficult for them to quantify 
whether that behavior is present or absent. And then we said, look, actually, it's not really about whether a behavior is present or absent, which is a sort of binary way of thinking about behavioral competencies. It's to what degree of sophistication it's present. It's not just binary on off. So actually, we've got to be much more sophisticated in the way that we think about behaviors and the way that we measure behaviors. And if you have a much more forensic, precise way of approaching that, you'll make an awful lot more progress very quickly. So even in the behavioral competency field, we keep seeing organizations who aren't aware of the research, who are sort of coming up with inventing and then trying to do some rollout and then six months or a year further down the pipe, wondering why it's not really moved the dial for their company because they're still struggling to measure it. They're still struggling for people to live the behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it's because they didn't have the sophistication going in and they created a sort of an amalgam which didn't really give them the return on the investment. Mm-hmm. Which is all well well intended, right? I mean, oh, yeah, it's all, all very well intended. So I'm, I'm not disputing, mm. you know, HR directors' desire to move the dial. They absolutely move, need to mm. move the dial. But going back to my medical days, it looks like, you know, I'm watching brain surgery with a spoon. So part of what we do is go and help. It's like, guys, love the passion and the intention. Let us help you get it precise so you can really make the progress you're after. So let us help you do it and you'll get a, a lot further faster. So moving a little bit wider than that forensic approach, Alan, which, you know, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, are, are you able to speak a little bit more generally about some of the approaches that any leader listening to this or any leader that HR leaders would like to support? What kind of an immediate area to focus on in terms of personal development that is particularly important right now? So, I mean, first of all, there's that, that ability to even self-assess and see where your areas of growth and immediate development may be. The start point, Bevan, is, is often with my emotional life, right? Mm-hmm. It's not my cognitive sophistication. Most C-suite, as I said, are, are smart enough. Right? What holds them back most of all is the inability to regulate their own emotion. So the commonest emotion in business, by the way, is frustration. Mm-hmm. Frustration is four times more common than any other emotion that exists. So we've done the research. People are frustrated by what's going on in business, you know, frustrated with their boss, frustrated with the customers, frustrated with the process, frustrated with something. And most people can't change that emotion very easily. Why? Because they think that emotion is due to something outside of them, right? So you frustrated me, Bevan. You did it to me, right? And if I think you frustrated me, then it's up to you to make me less frustrated. And you never do that. You just keep frustrating me. And so we sort of give away the power of our own emotional state to somebody else. My colleagues are annoying me. The customers are disappointing me, right? So we give the power away. Now, when we do that, we basically trap ourselves. So we say, no, no, you've got to take the power back. Stop pointing the finger at other people. Stop blaming other people for how you feel. The truth is, is you're the architect of your own emotional state. Nobody's doing anything to you. You're doing it to yourself. Now, if people can accept that they're doing it, because when I point this out to people, say, look, when you felt angry last week because your boss said something unkind and you got angry, did he actually inject you with chemicals that made you angry? Did he force tablets down your throat at that point that created the state of anger inside of you? Uh, No. I said, well, so who do you think created the chemistry of anger in your body? Uh, Me? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Now, if you can accept that simple truth, you created that in response to his bad behavior. You created that. If you can accept that you're the architect, you can uncreate it. And that's the game changer. So if people can take back the responsibility and start to train themselves to 
generate different responses in the face of bad behavior, then I can become response-able or responsible. I mean, that's what responsible leadership is. I am response-able. So stop reacting to what's going on around you and start responding. Get control of your response. You become response-able, responsible leadership. That's what that's about. So the start point for many people is to get that control back. And it surprises people, you know, when we do an exercise and say, well, look, trying to get control of how you feel on a moment-to-moment basis is entirely possible. Well, let's start with what emotions do you notice in your system? And we give people five minutes to make a list. And most people sort of get five or six emotions and occasionally you get, you know, the bright ones get seven or eight emotions. And occasionally you get one or two, get 10 or 12 emotions in the room. And you go, okay, well, how many are there? Uh, there are 34,000. There are 34,000 emotions it's possible to experience as a human being. And most people are wandering through their life with a dozen at best. So we're completely and utterly illiterate. What's a game changer in the early stages of helping human beings to really mature is until we've got control of our emotional life, we're at mercy of anything can flip us out at any point in time. And COVID's a a case in point, right? A lot of people get anxious and a lot of people get fearful. And there were some stats out recently saying 90% of all Americans have had some negative emotional experiences as a result of COVID. All that really is a testimony to the fact that human beings cannot control how they feel very effectively. It's because we weren't taught this at school. So we've sort of developmentally disabled, if you will. And so one of the things that's a rapid accelerant in the early stages is to teach people to get these emotions back under control, right? So they're responsible and they can control their emotional state. That doesn't make them robots. It just makes them effective that they can regulate their emotion in the middle of a crisis. Mm. And goodness me, we need human beings who are better able to regulate their emotions right now because there's a lot of fear and anxiety and panic as the economic consequences of COVID bites. And we need leaders to turn up visibly and manifest optimism and enthusiasm and encouragement and compassion not fear and panic and nastiness and narcissism. And we don't need that. We need leaders to lead. And that's partly what the HR agenda is about. So often of all these different lines of development, we'll often start there with the emotional line because it's such a game changer and it unlocks your capacity to reach the higher altitudes of some of the other lines. Well, you mentioned the uh, the HR agenda there, Alan. I mean, in your book, The HR Revolution, that you've just recently published, mm. you argue that, well, I mean, you map out quite beautifully the almost the history of evolution of HR in organizations and how that's reflected by the evolution of society, right, and, and the world around us. So in, in that book, you argue that this puts HR in a unique position in its own history in which it is no longer a useful area of business. It is now a strategic imperative if we are to move forward. Mm. But looking beyond just the success of an individual organization, we're talking here about for the benefit of you know, all mankind, basically, yeah. aren't we? I yes. mean, so, so just mm. share with me your views of what's the, the real upside of this. If we go from where you've just spoken about of individuals taking their personal responsibility, even mm. in something as small as taking responsibility for their own emotional experience, and we extrapolate that approach, that, that mindset out to the bigger picture, what are we actually talking about here? Well, I'd like to share a story from a friend of mine called Elizabeth Sartoris, who's one of the world's greatest evolutionary biologists. Mm-hmm. And she tells a really beautiful story about the evolution of living things on planet Earth. And originally, it was all just chemicals, and eventually life forms emerge in the shape of a single-celled organism, bacteria. 
and it took bacteria. This is way before human beings emerged, right? It took bacteria basically a billion years to realize we should stop killing each other and we should collaborate. It took them a billion years to realize that. And the first degree of collaboration between single-cell bacteria is they started to share a bit of their cytoplasmic DNA and they put it in a joint library, which became the nucleus. So from cells without a nucleus to cells having a nucleus, that took a billion years. But once these bacteria, single-cell bacteria, got their own nucleus, they all started fighting each other. So they started to kill each other. And it took a second billion years for bacteria to go, hmm, do you know what? It might be more energy efficient to collaborate than to kill. Uh, duh, I think you'll find that's correct. So that took two billion years. And the second collaboration was the emergence of multicellular organisms. So it took a billion years to get a cell nucleus. It took a second billion years to get to multicellular. And then once things became multicellular, evolution really started to hockey stick and all sorts of living forms emerged and eventually mankind and you know, the five seconds to midnight story, you know, when mankind emerged and the evolution of living mm -hmm. things, right? Mm -hmm. So actually what happens is there's very, very good evidence to show that all living species, including man, do much better when we collaborate rather than getting into some excessive competition, right? So if you're going to open up a new shoe shop, the best place to open up a new shoe shop is on a street with three other shoe shops, right? Because that's where the footfall is. But if you go into excessive, aggressive competition, we're going to try and kill off all the other shoe shops in that street. You know, we're going to undercut them on price and da, da, da. And imagine you achieve that and you shut them all down. And you're now the only shoe shop and you think you're going to hoover up all the business. People stop coming down that street because there's only one shoe shop in town now. So excessive competition is not healthy. And so... But in business, we've got this sort of rather short-sighted um, and undeveloped view, uh, sort of what I call excessive Darwinianism, you know, where every company's got to kill the competition. And you're saying, well, that, that's nonsense. That is not a healthy scenario. And in fact, if you want to look at another piece of evidence, uh, I'll often ask the question to people, what's the best economy in the world? You know, and that's a very interesting question to ask, particularly finance people. You know, and people go, oh, well, it's America, or it's China, or it's Germany, or somewhere. They go, no, 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 it's none of those things. Well, where is it then? I say the human body. The human body is the best economy in the world because the liver doesn't try and dominate the spleen. The lungs don't try and have one over on the, on the heart. You know, these different pieces all work in a beautiful, collaborative cooperation. And from that, when you get that balance right, great art comes, great literature comes, and the system produces amazing things. So when you've got an economy where one company isn't trying to kill all the other companies, I mean, that's not healthy. In fact, in the human body, that's cancer, right? But in business, that's the sort of unsophisticated view, which we've got to kill each other. And I'm saying, no, no, we've got to live in healthy balance. We've got to be less obsessed with profit in and of itself. Profit is one metric. Now, profit is important to fill pension funds and all that kind of thing, but it's not the only metric. Mm. There are other contributions to society. And so in the book, we go through this sort of evolution of thinking within the HR field, basically the past, present, and future of HR. And as exactly as you described, HR was very reactive to what was happening in society. But I think we've reached a really interesting moment where HR can seize an opportunity, stop reacting to society, and start leading which is why the subtitle of the book is called Change the Workplace, Change the World. Mm. So there's a, this amazing moment for the HR community was when you see 
that it's an inflection, that it really is about the people and people have woken up to the fact that it's about the people, right? HR can now start leading, start adding real strategic value, become deliberately developmental organizations and step change, not just their own company, but beyond their own company. Because why do businesses exist? You know, a coffee company that's paying no tax in a certain geography, eventually society says, we're not going to that coffee shop because we think they're just taking all their profits offshore and we'll stop, you know, so... Any company only exists by right of its the endorsement in society. So business has to start giving back to society in a proper and appropriate fashion. Not having a whole tax department to avoid any tax payment, that has to change, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, now is the opportunity for the HR community to start to see get ahead of the curve and start leading and setting up different types of practice. And we describe what they are in the book of what's coming leading into that new and exciting future, not just for the benefit of their own organizations, but for the benefit of society and for all of us. Helen, those are profound words, and I, I think it's a great place to leave the conversation. I think we could uh, stretch this off in many directions, but I think that's a, that's a wonderful place to leave it. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you for your insights. I enjoyed that a great deal. Okay, thanks for talking to us, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.